Well, I hope you all had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Our family sure did. We got together with a bunch of old friends uh, from college uh, out at their house, uh, one of the friends' uh, homes out in the Los Angeles area. And we just had a great time hanging out together. We ate, and then we swam, and then we ate, and then we swam, and then we ate some more, and then we swam some more. It was one of those get-togethers, you know, where the food is just out on the table the entire day, and you just keep coming back to refill your plate. It was a good time together. And you know what I notice when you get together with good friends, old good friends, is that you often just spend so much time sitting around talking about what's good. And you also will spend some time, you know, in in serious conversation, maybe talking about some of the the tough things you're going through, some of the struggles you're facing. But often we would find ourselves talking about stuff that is good, stuff that we experienced that was good. Like someone said, did you catch how good the game was last night? Oh, it was such a good game. Someone said, yeah, that play at the end was so crazy. Oh, such a good game. And then as we're going through line and we're trying different food, there was this dip there, like this really unique dip nobody had ever, like, had before. And, and somebody tried it. Oh, this dip is so good. Have you tried this dip? No, I haven't tried it. I'll try it. Oh, that is good. Man, what is that dip? I don't know. Who brought it? Oh, I brought it. This dip is amazing. Where did you get this dip? Oh, I got it from Trader Joe's. Oh, Trader Joe's is so good. I love Trader Joe's. Yeah, everything was pre-made and ready to just mix. You didn't have to cook anything, chop anything. Oh, that sounds so good. I'm going to make that when I get home. Yeah. Oh, speaking of something good, did you see that new show on Netflix, that that one, that that British crime-solving show? Did you catch that twist at the end? Oh, it's so good, so good. And on and on we went. We tried this restaurant the other day. It was so good. We went to this beach, this spot, great parking. It was so good. On and on we went around the table about what was good. You ever do that when you get together with friends? Talk about how good this is, how good that is. Well, if you were sitting around the table hanging out with King David, he would definitely speak up and say, let me tell you about something that's good. And what he would say is what we find in the first verse of Psalms, the 133rd chapter. David says in verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You want to know what's so good, David says, when God's people are together as one, when they are unified. And then David goes on to say in this short psalm that's packed with lots of meaning, exactly how good that unity is. In verse 2 he says, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard. I wish I could grow a good beard, but I can't. I don't know what that would be like. But he says, that's, that's what it's like. It's like this precious oil poured on your head, and it's running down your beard, running down Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now, if you were going to describe something that was good to your friends, that's probably not the first simile you would use, right? Oh, man, this dip is so good. It's like, you know... Something poured on my head that's running down my beard and all over my clothes. It's so good. Probably wouldn't be the first simile you'd use, right? Doesn't hold a lot of meaning for us. But in David's time, it would have been something that everybody would have resonated with because this would have brought to everybody's mind uh, the setting of a banquet feast and party. 
And they would often do this when, when people would come, especially the honored guests, and they would anoint them with oil. I want to read uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. We get a picture of, of what this is like back in that day. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. The, the anointing of oil in these kinds of settings was like a, a celebration thing, a time of, of joy together. And often when uh, oil was uh, anointed on someone's head in those kind of banquet settings, it was mixed with different spices to create this really beautiful smelling perfume made it a pleasurable smell and experience. And the fact that it's running down the beard highlights just how much has been poured out on, the, on their head, the abundance of the sweet-smelling perfume that has been poured on this honored guest. Have you ever been around someone who's maybe put on a little too much perfume or a little too much cologne? You know, it, it can be a little overwhelming, but, but boy, the whole room fills with that smell, doesn't it? What an image here of what the unity of God's people is like. It's like a sweet-smelling perfume that is just so abundant, it fills the entire space with a sweet aroma. That's what David says unity among God's people is like. But then the oil is also described as running down on another beard, Aaron's beard. There is clearly a shift here from the secular banquet setting now to a sacred setting. Aaron and the other high priests were anointed with oil. Remember, before they were uh, called, to, or they were allowed to do their service as high priests. And in Leviticus chapter nine, just after Aaron has been anointed as high priest, he blesses the people. A central aspect to this anointing of the high priest was that it empowered them with the ability to bless the people. In chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them after having sacrificed the sin offering and the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. He blessed them. Unity among God's people is like a blessing. Among us. And the fact that this blessing reaches to everyone is illustrated all the more in the words of the psalmist as he describes that the oil is falling on the priest's robe, on the ephod and the breastplate, which would have had Israel's, all 12 tribes of Israel inscribed, all their names on the breastplate. So you see the symbolism here, how this is a blessing, this is a spiritual blessing. When God's people are in unity, that, that extends to everybody. Everyone benefits from this. And then we come to verse 3, and we see David uses a second simile. He says, it is as good as if the dew from Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. You see some of the same imagery as the first simile, this idea of falling down, running down. This picture of the goodness is so abundant that it's just, it's rushing down. But this time it's not down the beard. It's from one mountain to the, to the other, from Mount Hermon to Mount Zion. Now, both of these mountains were considered special places, sacred places. 
for God's people. And they're kind of far apart from each other. Mount Hermon is located in the northern region of, of ancient Israel, and Zion was like 200 miles south of that. So maybe David is trying to illustrate extreme abundance here because that would be a lot of dew to be able to flow from Mount Hermon all the way, 200 miles away to Mount Zion. Maybe that's what he's getting at. But maybe rather than getting hung up on the geography, uh, the geographic locations of, of these two mountains, I think maybe the more important detail to focus on is the dew itself. Have you ever noticed that when you read through Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, dew is talked a lot about it, and it's talked about in terms of of blessing and life-giving power. In Genesis 27, when Isaac gave his blessing to Jacob, he thought he was giving it to Esau, but when he gave it to Jacob, he asked God to give heaven's dew to him and earth's riches. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, when Moses is blessing the different tribes and he gets to Asher, he asks for the heavens to drop dew so that the land will produce crops. The prophet Haggai notes that the earth has withheld, in in his first chapter, has withheld its produce because the heavens has withheld its dew. And then you read in the prophet Isaiah in the 26th chapter, this idea of dew takes on an even deeper metaphorical meaning. It's related to the resurrection of life. For there the prophet announces that the dew of God will come in the morning, and when that happens, the earth will give birth to her dead. In these texts and many others, we see that Scripture describes dew as this divine blessing that that creates fertile conditions for growth, for the bearing of fruit, for the creation of life, for life itself. What an image for how good unity among God's people is. It provides the fertile ground for growth, fruit-bearing, for life to happen among us. I think it also kind of paints a picture that things can get very dry, things can get very dead amongst God's people when unity is not good. I think Jesus described the life-giving power of unity the best in his prayer in John 17. I just want to read you an excerpt from his prayer, starting in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me and loved them even as you have loved. Unity is what will help the world to see that Jesus is the Son of God. Unity is what will help the world to see that God loves them. No wonder David said, how good is it when God's people are unified? Oh, it's like the dew flowing from Mount Hermon to Zion. It's that good. Creates the fertile ground for them to know God. 
Well, you may be thinking, Darren, that all sounds really nice, unity and all. You know, I think all of us would agree, Darren, that you know, we want to be together, we want to be unified, but, but what does that really mean? What does that look like? Does that mean we all, we all agree all the time, that, that we all think the same way? What does that look like? Well, there's plenty of places in Scripture we could go to to maybe get some insight on what that unity amongst God's people that is really good looks like. But I think maybe in this tiny psalm, we get some hints, some lessons also about what that unity looks like. And I think the first way this little psalm tells us that unity looks like is that it looks like family. In verse 1, where it says, God's people... How good is it that God's people live in unity? That, that phrase in the original language or it is a word uh, that's translated into God's people. In the original language, that word is simply ahim, which means brothers. Rendered literally, it would say, uh, how good is it when brothers live in unity together? And many scholars contend that this is bringing family life into the picture here in the psalm. In fact, family life, family units back in the Old Testament were a little bit different than our family units typically today. Uh, they were organized around the patriarch and his wife, and, and living with them was often the unmarried children, of course, and, and even the married sons. So it's talking about how uh, good it is for brothers to be in unity together. They would have often still lived in the same camp, uh, per se, under the same patriarch. Uh, they would have the unmarried children, the married sons and their families, the grandsons and their families, as well as servants and their families, and even sojourners. This extended family could easily approach 75 to 100 people. Now, I love my family. I love my immediate family. I love my parents. I love my in-laws. I love my, my siblings, my cousins, my aunts and uncles. But can you imagine living with like 75 or 100 of your relatives under the same roof in the same compound? Man, that would be tough. Conflict would not just be possible. It would be inevitable. That many family members under the same roof. In fact, Scripture recounts numerous familial conflicts, particularly those amongst brothers, right? Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, just to name a few. The Bible tells us that families don't always get along. They're not always perfect. They don't always agree. There's tension. But even so, that is the reality, and it's important for us to remember that that's the reality. If it's a healthy family, even when there's tension, there is still a special bond that exists, doesn't there? I don't know about you, but I was thinking this morning of my sisters. I have an older sister who's three and a half years older and a younger sister who's 11 years younger. And when I was young, and it was just me and my older sister, Gina, before Kaylin came along, I thought it was my mission in life to just make her life as miserable as possible. I mean, I would, I would invite friends over. You know, you, you know the Crispins? Matthew Crispins was my good buddy when I was a kid. I used to invite Matthew over just for the sole purpose of pestering Gina, trying to play a prank on her or something. You know, we didn't always get along, but even at that young age, man, I loved my sister. I looked up to her. There wouldn't be anything I wouldn't do for her. But 
we didn't always get along. And then I thought about when my younger sister, Kaylin, came along, and she was 11 years younger, and so my sister was already off, my older sister, to college when Kaylin was like in her threes and fours, and guess who had to watch, you know, their baby sister every summer? Me, when I was a teenager. And she was so cute and fun when she was three, but she was also a handful when she was three. We didn't always get along. It was tough. But man, there wasn't anything I wouldn't do for my little sister. You know, I would protect her at any cost. I loved her. You think about in your own family relationships, how sometimes it's a struggle to get along, but there isn't anything that you wouldn't do for them. There's a special bond, a special love, a special loyalty that exists. I think it's important for us to remember as a church family that we experience unity like a family which means we're not gonna always agree. We're gonna have tension. It's inevitable <laughs> with so many different people under the same roof, right? But we also will have a special bond, a special love, loyalty for each other. There isn't anything we wouldn't do for one another. We'll always be there for each other. I think David says that unity, it looks like family. But I think the psalm also shows us something else that it looks like, even more important. There is familial language here, but as we've already noted, the spiritual community is also in view. The anointing of Aaron brought that in, the, the fact that it, the priestly robe was talked about, the dew, the sacred mountains, especially that of Zion. I, in the heading of your Bible at the beginning of this psalm, does it say something like psalm of ascent? Does it say that there? These psalms of ascent are our particular group of psalms towards the 120s to the end of the 130s about. And oftentimes these psalms of, of ascent have a focus of Zion in view. God's people are gathering together to make their way towards Zion, a pilgrimage there, and they're singing these songs as they go there. And Zion is the place where God dwells. Therefore, that is where blessings dwell, just like it says here in 133. God's people are focused on journeying to God's presence together, and that's what brings them together. So these people aren't coming together because of some common cause or, or shared opinion. These people are coming together for a person, for their God. Maybe what I'm trying to communicate here would be better um, understood or expressed in this quote I found from E. Stanley Jones. He's a well-known missionary and theologian from the early and mid-1900s. He said this. I have the quote on the screen for you. Talk about what you believe and you have disunity. Talk about who you believe in and you have unity. I think that's what unity looks like amongst God's people. They are together as one because they've come together to talk about and focus on the one they believe in. When I was in graduate school, up at San Francisco State University a number of years back. I used to have to commute to class on the Bay Area Rapid Transit. Anybody else take BART when you're up in the Bay Area before? Yeah. 
Uh, we lived in the East Bay, and you know, it takes you all the way under the, on the floor of the bay, and then you get through downtown San Francisco, and, and San Francisco State University is all the way out in Daly City, so it's kind of a trek. You've got to go past downtown, and almost like you're going to South San Francisco. So it's about a 45, 50-minute journey every day, and of course, I'm getting on a, a crowded train almost every day of the week with complete strangers, and, and most of the time, I would just stay quiet, and oftentimes, I was studying last minute before the class I was going to. But this particular day, I didn't have anything to study with. I was just kind of standing there, you know, people watching and, and just waiting the time. And as I was standing there in the train, there was a gentleman sitting next to me who had the newspaper open to the sports page. And I was kind of, you know, reading through it too. It was kind of nice. He had it open to the sports page. And he was specifically looking at the baseball scores and the standings. And he also had on him a San Francisco Giants jacket, which makes sense. We were in Giants territory. And uh, there was another gentleman standing close to me that was standing over the shoulder of this Giants fan who couldn't resist. He leaned over and said to the guy, hey, how about my Padres last night who beat your Giants? In fact, the Padres had just swept the Giants. And I should also preface this. The Giants, I think, won the World Series the, the year before, and it was early in the season, and they were doing terrible. I think the Padres were in first place, which never happens. Um, uh, hardly ever. And the Giants were like doing terrible. And we swept them that weekend. And this guy who was a Padres fan was rubbing it in. And then the guy who's a Giants fan started to jokingly, you know, talk some smack back. And he's like, oh yeah, laugh it up, live it up now, because by the end of the season, we'll be in first place again, and you'll be in last place. And they talked back and forth a little bit until the next stop, and the Giants fan got off. Now, I was born in San Diego. I am a die-hard San Diego Padres fan. So when that Giants fan got off the train, I had a new friend. I, I went over to him. I said, hey, I want to let you know I'm, I'm a Padres fan too, and it did feel so good to sweep the Giants this weekend. Oh, you're a Padres fan too? Yeah. And for the next 30 minutes, you know, we were both on the train. He got off after me, but for the next 30 minutes, we talked nothing but Padres baseball, you know, who, who their best players are, who the players in their farm system are. We talked about how we believe they could do good this year, and if we just got these players, you know, we, we could actually make it. Maybe at the trade, line, trade deadline, we could make this transaction, and, and maybe we could be in first place. I can remember thinking during that, during that train ride, this guy's a total stranger, but I think he could be my best friend. Because we were talking about who it was we believed in. We had this instant bond. Another type of moment like that happened to me around a train also. Uh, this uh, happened in Atlanta, Georgia, when I was waiting on the platform uh, in an underground station, uh, waiting to go to the convention center uh, in downtown Atlanta. And this was during the general conference session for Seventh-day Adventists. And so there were a lot of Adventists that were in Atlanta and that were headed, this was Sabbath morning, to the convention center for church. And you could tell, you could tell by the way people were dressed, you know, there on the platform, a lot of Adventist Christians were going to church, but there was a lot of other different kind of people there as well. And there was something that malfunctioned with the plane, or the plane, the train, planes, trains, almost, uh, something that happened with the train. And so it was delayed. And so we all sat there uh, waiting and waiting, and during that waiting time, somebody started to sing Amazing Grace. 
It didn't take them long. It just got to the second, you know, verse, you know, that saved a wretch like me, that somebody else started joining in, then a few others started joining in, and it kept going, and, and more people joined in. Pretty soon it seemed like the entire crowd on the platform turned into a choir. And, and the acoustics there in that underground station, it just reverberated this perfect harmony together. It was so cool to see so many different people find common ground in the uncommon grace of God. When you focus on who you believe in, unity happens. I want to end by reading to you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian. It comes from his classic work entitled Life Together. Bonhoeffer actually begins that volume by quoting Psalms 133, verse 1. He then goes on to recount his experience in this place called Finkenwalde. I don't know if I said that right. That was my best. There's a terrible German accent. Finkenwalde. Where he lived in community with 25 other ministers. At the time when Hitler and the Third Reich were advancing their cause, crushing everyone in their way, they were living in this place together. And in such a destructive environment, Bonhoeffer describes how amazing the bond of unity was among those ministers. A unity that was created because they lived in the presence of Christ, he said. Here's his comments on that unity experience. He said, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less we belong to one another only through and in Jesus. And family, the unity that we experience here is through and in Jesus, and Jesus alone. Focusing on him together is what will bring us together. Family, I, I think it would be really cool if the next time we're hanging out with good friends, and we want to talk about something good. That we don't just talk about the new show we saw or, or this new place we visited, this new restaurant we tried or new recipe we made. But that we would also say, you know what was good? The unity we experienced together last Sabbath, church. Wasn't that good? And then someone says, yeah, that was so good. Man, it was like we were all living together as one. That will always be our experience if we focus on the one we believe in. Lord, we are stirred by your grace, overwhelmed by your love. We want to make a commitment today that you are truly all we seek because we know when we do that, Lord, we will be together in unity as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.